Welcome to One Health Wednesdays. This podcast aims to promote the principles of One Health and encourage professional development. Here's your host, Ginger Dixon. Hi, everyone. Welcome to One Health Wednesdays, a collaboration between LabOp Global and One Life Epi Solutions. I'm Ginger Dixon, and I'd like to introduce our guest today, Haley Yaglan. Haley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ginger. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. Yeah, thank you. We're excited to have you on. Um, especially, I, you know, I love our epis. Uh, you are a One Health Genomics epidemiologist, and uh, I'm excited to hear more about you know your, your past, your background, and um, how you led into One Health. Yes. Thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to, to share my background and experiences with you. Um, so as you said, I, I currently serve as the One Health Genomics Epidemiologist for a nonprofit public health agency called TGen. TGen stands for the Translational Genomics Research Institute. And while we do have research in our agency name, um, the more important part of our agency title is the translational piece. We really work to translate translate the science that we do um, into the public health, healthcare, and most importantly in the context of our conversation today, the One Health arena. My passion for One Health um, it really is multifaceted. And I'm sure folks that are listening uh, to this podcast know what One Health is. But just to bring everybody onto the same page, you know, One Health is this dynamic uh, idea that there is this intersect between human, animal, and environmental health. Um, and it takes a lot of collaboration, coordination, and communication, big C's, um, across various disciplines and partners to really implement uh, work across the, the One Health lens. Um, so again, my, my passion for One Health uh, really is multifaceted. And you know it, it stems from the enjoyment of bringing together these partners to do impactful science, bringing together folks from wildlife, from veterinary clinics, from the public health epidemiology realm, uh, infection preventionists working in hospitals and in clinics, uh, other scientists, academia, from a local, statewide, you know, national and global level, bringing all those folks together to make good, impactful science happen. My background is kind of unique. I, I didn't know at first that I was going to find myself in the genomics epi realm. Um, and originally, I received my bachelor's from the University of Massachusetts in animal science, and very much uh, from an early age fell in love with the idea of being a veterinarian, not just because I loved animals, but because I really enjoyed, again, that intersect between um, animal health, human health, and communication with with partners and science and medicine. Uh, I just loved all of it. And so I, I went into that academic realm uh, thinking that I was going to have a path in veterinary medicine. Um, but, but pretty quickly, my eyes got opened to the world of public health and One Health. And I received a master's in animal biotechnology, also from the University of Massachusetts. So I have a little bit of laboratory experience. And uh, then I received my um, master's of public health 
Health from the University of Missouri with a concentration in veterinary public health and epidemiology. And it was at the University of Missouri that I actually first heard about uh, the concept of One Health and came to appreciate um, its meaning. And the funny story about this is I didn't really learn about One Health from the context of infectious disease, which is where most people's mind go when they think about One Health. Um, you know, we of course now we think about SARS-CoV-2 and animal reservoirs. Um, we think about a lot of other diseases that are really critical for Arizona, um, but a One Health extends into a lot of different areas, so many different areas: climate change um, and definitely emerging infectious diseases and pathogens, but also uh, the, the benefits for, that we can get from interacting with animals. And so I, I worked at the University of Missouri Research Center for Human-Animal Interaction for a couple of years um, as a project coordinator, really studying that exact thing. How can we uh, leverage the human-animal bond, you know, this close connection that we have with animals around us, whether it's horses uh, for therapeutic riding purposes, uh, therapy dogs, or our own personal pets. How can we look at the science behind that and, and better understand how interacting with those animals improves our physical health, our mental and emotional health and well-being? And that was really what opened my eyes into One Health um, beyond infectious diseases. But I am uh, definitely an infectious disease person at heart, um, and, and my epidemiology training brought me to Arizona in 2014, where I started as the vector-borne and zoonotic disease epidemiologist um, for the Arizona Department of Health Services, which is the state health department uh, for Arizona. Arizona has 15 counties and 21 tribal nations um, that all uh, are the public health authority. And the state uh, plays a role in supporting all of the disease surveillance um, and response efforts related to various activities. Um, so again, my role was particularly in the vector-borne and zoonotic disease realm, which again really uh, lends itself to One Health, or I should say One Health really lends itself to that arena. Uh, a couple of opportunities that I think would be really cool to share with you, uh, again, really touch on, on One Health. So in Arizona, in my role, um, you know, rabies is a, a huge One Health concern, not just in Arizona, but uh, certainly on a national and global scale. And from prevention in companion animals through routine vaccination, surveillance in wildlife, and response to animal bites by public health, um, numerous partners across the state of Arizona have a role in responding to and, and tackling this disease um, and, and really making sure that we're looking at it through this One Health lens, what can human healthcare clinicians know about rabies and when it's appropriate to give the prophylaxis to a person if they potentially are exposed to rabies. From that perspective, um, all the way to how uh, could we potentially encroach on these uh, animal, like these wild environments that increase the potential for wildlife to have interaction with people. You know, we, we do a lot of camping in Arizona, a lot of outside activities. Well, the more and more we go deep into those forested areas uh, outside of the desert region, 
the more, uh, the closer that we potentially are getting with some of these animal species that are also reservoirs for rabies. So we have to think about all of those multifaceted components. And that's why rabies is really uh, one of my favorite examples and, and the first example um, of a disease that I've worked on in Arizona uh, through a One Health lens. Yeah, and that's a fantastic example, certainly. And you touched on a lot of the different aspects, you know, between working with companion animals and bite response, and then you have wildlife surveillance. And um, that's absolutely, that's an important example. And I like, you know, I wanted to touch on um, when you brought up, you know, leveraging the, the human-animal bond and exploring the science behind that. That's a really interesting example for One Health, too. And I'm glad that, you, you know, shared that um, as a one health example too, because I think sometimes that's, as you said, you know, that's an aspect that's not as frequently explored. So thank you. Thank you for bringing up these great examples. Absolutely. And there are so many. And the, the cool thing about, um, well, the cool thing about One Health is that it touches again in every single space. Um, and there are just so many different emerging in diseases that we need to look at through that One Health lens, uh, of course, SARS-CoV-2, and even with monkeypox, um, but also a lot of endemic um, pathogens. And that that kind of leads me into a, a, you know another couple of examples. So two other diseases that I worked on while I was at ADHS um, are plague and tularemia. And these are two, for folks that are not familiar, these are two bacterial pathogens um, that are endemic zoonotic pathogens to the Southwest. Um, and they definitely circulate in Arizona um, in what we call an enzootic cycle. So they circulate with their animal um, or, or rodent um, or vector reservoirs. Um, but occasionally we can see spillover to companion animals or to people warranting a One Health response. In Arizona, we have, and again, in the Southwest, many states, we have um, a lot of different species of prairie dogs. Prairie dogs are really susceptible to plague. Um, and they're getting plague through being bitten by fleas that are um, carrying this bacteria and that are infected. And the fleas live with these uh, prairie dogs in their burrows. Um, the fleas want to feed off of their food sources. Um, but occasionally, the fleas are also then infected with this pathogen. Um, and then they spill it over into these prairie dogs. And prairie dogs, again, are super susceptible to plague um, and actually can die off. Colonies of prairie dogs die off from, uh, from plague. And so what this, uh, this is actually used in kind of a One Health Sentinel surveillance context because we have county health departments uh, throughout Northern Arizona specifically that get notified of these prairie dog die-offs. Suddenly, you know, spring rolls around for example, people who are used to seeing prairie dogs running around their backyards, popping up and down out of their burrows, nothing for weeks. And it's an indication that there could be plague circulating in the fleas. Um, and so public health actually goes out to these prairie dog locations and can flag the burrows, look for the presence of fleas, take the fleas back to the laboratory and test them for the presence of plague and use that information, the presence or absence, to put out messaging 
for public health and to support public health, but put out messaging to protect human and animal health and tell people, hey, we've detected plague in this region. This is normal, but we don't want it to spill over into your dog and cat that are wandering out in the fields. Or if you go hiking with your dog on a regular basis, make sure you avoid these areas or you use flea prevention on you know yourself and on your pets um and so i think these diseases are such cool examples because these are normal these are endemic pathogens very similar to rabies too we know that the rabies virus is going to circulate in wildlife but it really only becomes a public health threat um, when it spills over into people and and animals that are in closer environments to us. And if we tackle these diseases, we prevent them and respond to them in a One Health lens by working with our wildlife partners, by working with our veterinary partners, working with our clinicians and reminding them, hey, it's rare, but this is what plague looks like in a person. So if you identify this, make sure that you call public health because we need to keep track of this each year. We need to know how they acquired that disease. Did they acquire it from contact with infected fleas in prairie dog area? Or are there some other um, isolated events that we need to keep on our minds? Um, again, to better respond and protect the, the public health community. That is really interesting. And I can definitely speak to, you know, the number of prairie dogs <laughs> popping out of their, their little holes in Arizona and stuff. And I, you know, I really like that you've also kind of touched on that, that community involvement piece too, you know, where you have the sentinel surveillance about, hey, if you see this, you know, uh, we need to know this is an indicator of this. And then, and also that uh, messaging out to you know, your local providers and clinics to um, I like that you you touched on that point as well. Absolutely. And it's just something really critical. And again, my my passion for One Health comes from working with those partners to combat uh, and better respond to these diseases. And we did actually have an outbreak of plague in Arizona in 2015 up in Jerome, um, which for folks that aren't familiar with our, our state, again, we have 15 counties. Jerome is this very small uh, kind of town, uh, a little bit up on a mountain, uh, sort of in the center of Arizona. The population is about 300 to 400 people. So it's a very small town. Um, it's known as a, a ghost town in Arizona. Um, and there's there's a lot of tourists that come up there, but not a huge population. And there were several cats that were uh, testing positive for plague several years ago. And we worked with the local mobile veterinarian that um, that served that region and went door to door to remind people to use flea and tick prevention for their pets because there was plague circulating in that area. And it's definitely an area where we know plague is, is common. Um, but the concern is when it spills over into pets, because then it can spill over into people. And we, we want to avoid those types of situations. The good news is that plague and tularemia, since they're bacterial infections, are treatable, um, but it's something that we still want to prevent. So very, very cool. And then, you know, kind of spearheading into the, the less of a zoonotic realm where these diseases obviously can be spread from vectors, but oftentimes they're spilled over into animals or people from other animals. We definitely have our vector-borne diseases present in Arizona. Um, certainly these are also considered endemic pathogens. 
and we need to really respond to these from a One Health lens. One of the um, important diseases that we have to think about or groups of diseases we need to think about are mosquito-borne diseases, West Nile virus, St. Louis encephalitis. Um, and oftentimes people don't always think about the full One Health picture when they are thinking about a disease like West Nile virus. But there's a lot of collaborative work being done across Arizona and the Southwest to understand how this virus is moving across different uh, areas and uh, what are the risk factors that are driving increased cases certain years. Last year in Arizona, so 2021 was the um, highest year for West Nile virus human cases than ever before for any state since West Nile uh, came uh, about in the, the uh, 1999 um, to, to 2001 was when it was kind of first detected on the East Coast and then eventually made its way into the rest of the US and Arizona saw its first case in 2003. And so yeah, last, last year West Nile virus was absolutely awful and uh, specifically in Maricopa County and partners were looking uh, and continue to look in a multifaceted way as to why the cases were so much higher last year. Um, but even taking a step back from that, one thing to consider about West Nile virus is yes, it's a mosquito to human disease and humans cannot pass that to another person um, unless they uh, have contaminated blood products. There, there definitely has been lots of lots of documented cases of West Nile virus um, being spread through blood transfusions. But otherwise, um, an infected mosquito can bite a person, and then a mosquito cannot then pick up that virus from a person and spread it back to another person or animals. So we're considered a dead end host with respect to this virus. Um, however, animals are also susceptible to West Nile virus, particularly um, horses. And the animal reservoir for which the virus kind of circulates uh, with the mosquito population um, is birds. Birds are an amplifier, which means that they can get infected and they generate a lot of virus in their body. So naive baby new mosquitoes can bite these birds, pick up the virus, and then spread that to people or horses or other mammals. Um, and so there's a lot of surveillance that's being done from the the environmental component uh, to better understand hotspots of West Nile virus, looking at West Nile in mosquito pools year after year. Uh, Maricopa County is, has one of the most robust vector control programs in the U.S., and they set out over 800 mosquito traps um, every single day of the year to trap for mosquitoes and test them for the presence of West Nile virus and other critical viruses, communicate that back to public health. So maybe there's not a necessarily a direct animal involved in that component, like the example with plague and the prairie dogs, um, but there's definitely surveillance being done, again, through this One Health lens, and then the sharing and communication and coordination once that data is available so public health knows how to respond and let clinicians know what they should be on the lookout for with their human um, human folks. Absolutely. And it's interesting too, because um, Arizona has been doing some work on um, making sure that their, their mosquito, you know, vector-borne disease programs are also resilient to a changing climate. And so that's very much integrating that, that One Health lens as well. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially people having the awareness of, you know, how the virus affects, you know, horses and birds and how they play into that whole dynamic is, uh, is definitely important to understanding too. So another great example. I like these. <laughs> yeah. And again, that to me is, uh, is the best part to, or the most exciting way to communicate about, um, about one health is just through all these different examples and remind people that, really One Health touches so many areas and there is so much that is thought about from the, uh, again, kind of the human animal piece. And we forget this environment piece sometimes. Um, and the, the best part about One Health is that we don't do things in silos. One Health has brought all of this together. So, you know, the uh, kind of continuing with this realm, the, the other example before I transition to SARS-CoV-2 that I want to touch on um, is a tick-borne disease. Um, so Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is a, is a rickettsial tick-borne disease that has threatened um, the health of our tribal communities in Arizona for almost 20 years now. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is not a novel disease. It's been around for a very long time and it is spread by the bite of an infected tick. Um, and there are a lot of different species of ticks that spread Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Um, so again, this is a bacterial infection um, different than our, our viral infections spread uh, by the bite of mosquitoes. And in, in some parts of the U.S., uh, people encounter these infected ticks through your more typical um, environmental interactions. So after hiking or camping or going up to the edge of your backyard that's in a wooded area, um, you know, these ticks are certain species of ticks um, are in those types of, of environments um, in certain kind of ecological settings. And that's how folks are, are acquiring these tick bites. Well, in Arizona and actually in northern Mexico, we have a, a really unique situation. So the tick vector that spreads Rocky Mountain spotted fever in this region is called the brown dog tick. Um, exactly looks exactly like it sounds. The tick is brown. It feeds on dogs primarily. So it doesn't feed on these small rodent mammal um, mammals that um that these that other tick species say in North Carolina or Missouri or Texas um, or Virginia, you know, feed on. Um, and and those those ticks feed on those mammals and then they can Rocky Mountain spotted fever, that pathogen that causes the disease circulates amongst that. And then an infected tick bites a person. Well, again, in, in Arizona and Northern Mexico, it's very different. Um, and it's spread by the bite of a brown dog tick. The brown dog tick is actually found throughout all of the U.S., um, but it really is the primary vector for RMSF um, in this part of the, the U.S., again, in, in Arizona and northern Mexico. So the other unique component is that people are acquiring the disease in what we call a peridomestic setting. So peridomestic means um, kind of in and around homes. So people are not getting bitten by the brown dog tick when they're camping in the lush parts of Arizona, um, you know, the, the nice parts of the, the year. They're actually getting bitten by this tick uh, when it's coming into their, their home environments. And that's where we get to the tribal communities. Um, so you really need this perfect, what I call a domino effect um, for Rocky Mountain spotted fever transmission in wide scale to happen. So the, the presence of the vector 
is is there um, across a number of our tribal communities. Um, and then you do have to have the, the bacteria present as well. So you have to have ticks, but you also have to have infected ticks. But then you additionally need to have this perfect environment and food source for these ticks to continue to um, breed and populate and uh, maintain this pathogen in their system. And that's where these dogs come into play. So on a lot of our tribal reservations in Arizona, we have high numbers of free roaming dogs. And as I alluded to with the name of this tick, the brown dog tick feeds um, and breeds on dogs. Dogs are its primary host. It's a three host life cycle. So it means that the tick needs to feed on a dog um, or another host, but they prefer dogs three different times to go throughout each of the stages. And different from other species of ticks, uh, this is a little bit of a vector, a vector lesson, but different than other species of ticks, um, the brown dog tick um, can actually spread uh, the, the bacteria from a, a pregnant female to all of her eggs. So this pathogen can be spread transovarially, which means if you have a pregnant female all 3,000 to 5,000 of her baby ticks that she then gives birth to will also be infected with uh, the rickettsial pathogen. It's not like Lyme disease where these nymphal ticks need to bite a small mammal to pick up the Borrelia bacterium. For the brown dog tick, these baby ticks, if their mom was infected, then they're born infected. And so that's 5,000 little baby ticks that are ready to bite their next host. Um, and so you can just maybe think about how really quickly um, you've got this perfect, again, domino effect, this perfect environment where you've got infected ticks, you've got dogs, which is their preferential host, um, to continue that life cycle. Well, the next layer of this is that these free roaming dogs are exactly that. They roam around the communities, these tribal communities. They're not quite pets as maybe most of us would have uh, our pet dogs where they live inside the house. We take them for walks daily. They live in a fenced backyard. These dogs are cared for, but they're free to roam around the community. Well, with the roaming comes the dispersal of these infected ticks. Well, what happens when you have a dog that is in one home environment and these dogs stay close to people's homes? So that's, again, where the peri-domestic nature comes into play. Uh, what happens if those dog, that, that dog leaves to go to another home or another part of that neighborhood? All the ticks that were potentially on that dog might be left behind and they're looking for their next food source. So while their preferential food source is a dog, the next food source available might be a person. Um, and these ticks are definitely known to bite people. Um, and what has resulted from all of this is a, a high number of Rocky Mountain spotted fever cases acquired in our tribal communities around this home environment, particularly in young kids that like to play in the backyard or play out in the front yard with the dogs, don't always wear shoes in the summertime, potentially get bit by ticks. The ticks are really tiny. And so if there's not that hypervigilance of mom or dad to check the kids for ticks, you can absolutely have tick bites. Um, and then the really big public health challenge with this disease is um, that it, it can be deadly if not treated with doxycycline within the first couple of days of illness. 
So let me wrap that all up and put the One Health spin on that. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is absolutely another disease that we respond to in Arizona through this One Health lens. And hopefully by telling you about the epidemiology and the ecology of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, you can already elucidate why we have to respond to RMSF through this lens. We've got the environmental and vector component, i.e. the ticks. We have the, um, the ticks that live in this peri-domestic environment in and around people's homes, feeding and breeding on dogs. There, there you go. We have dogs. You've got the animal component. And then we wrap up with the human health component of One Health because this is a public health threat and we need to make sure that we know how to protect um, the, the people that are at risk and communicate to the um, healthcare community. So how do we respond to this in Arizona? Well, we have these Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever campaigns that have existed for many years, um, and it takes a village for sure to put these on, but it looks like a door-to-door -door campaign where you have individuals that are providing A, education to the homeowners, B, an environmental health specialist that is uh, putting tick spray or some type of safe pesticide safe for people and kids and the dogs um, around the home environment to kill and prevent these ticks from coming into that area. And then you've got other individuals from public health and animal control that are putting tick collars on the dogs and checking the dogs for ticks, as well as veterinary staff that are providing veterinary care for these dogs, vaccinations to keep them healthy overall, and spay and neuter programs to uh, decrease the likelihood of these dogs wanting to roam from neighborhood to neighborhood. It's absolutely one of my favorite examples um, and something that I've been involved in in Arizona uh, mostly with the Department of Health, but been involved with in our tribal communities for a very, very long time. And it's been really successful. We've seen a huge decline in human Rocky Mountain spotted fever cases. That's fantastic. And I, I like that you've talked about how this is my mentioning example of a One Health interdisciplinary response, you know. Um, a lot of times we talk about, you know, the, the one health surveillance part of things, but it's kind of an all hands on deck to, to make a really, um, effective holistic response. That's amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, those are, are a lot of different examples. Um, so I kind of want to, you know, hopefully wrap up and, and fast forward to where we are now and where I am now in my career and, and how I've been able to take one health forward. So as I said earlier, I was at so I was at the Arizona Department of Health Services doing all of this amazing work with Rocky Mountain spotted fever, rabies, plague, West Nile virus, tularemia, working with all of these different partners for five years. And I wanted to take that to the next level and really bring in a little bit more of that research level and figure out how we can implement some new programs, leveraging all of those existing partnerships. And that's what led me to the opportunity that I am in, in now, the position I'm in now with TGen um, as a One Health genomics epidemiologist. So I started at TGen in 2019 
to really continue bringing forth the idea of a Southwest One Health Collaborative. Again, what are all the partners doing uh, in their individual realms and how can we bring them together, um, work with academic partners and other scientists and researchers to tackle some of these One Health concerns um, through a One Health lens and better support our public health partners and wildlife health partners and veterinary community. Um, and that was going great. And then the COVID-19 pandemic hit, as everyone is very familiar with. Um, what that actually did was open up even more One Health opportunities. So as folks know, uh, and even though there's a little debate still going on, SARS-CoV-2 is a zoonotic viral pathogen. Um, we do have evidence that the virus um, has an origin in bats um, and many coronaviruses that we have previously seen emerge uh, also have their origins in bats. Um, and then the challenge is, well, when that spills over into people. So this is certainly not a, a, a conversation on the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and, and how it really uh, became a, a widespread pandemic but more of a, a conversation about how uh, we, we've been able to look at SARS-CoV-2 across the, the One Health spectrum um, in Arizona and for me specifically in the role that I'm in now. So what I wanna talk about is uh, some projects that we've had going on related to SARS-CoV-2 in animals. And we knew uh, fairly early on in the pandemic around April, 2020, that um, animals were definitely susceptible besides bats that we knew were reservoirs, animals themselves were susceptible to infection with SARS-CoV-2. This all stemmed out of a couple of cases in lions and tigers at the Bronx Zoo that were likely exposed to asymptomatic but infected zookeeper staff. And so the next thing that came from there were, well, can our domestic dogs and cats get it? Can they give it to us? That was a huge question. Um, and the evidence to, to put that out there is still exists that animals play a very insignificant role in spreading uh, SARS-CoV-2 back into people. So really, they, they don't play any role at all. There's been a limited number of, of cases where humans have been infected uh, with COVID-19 from contact with mink. And uh, in one case of a veterinarian um, overseas that was infected through contact with a cat. Um, and in Canada, um, evidence of infection resulting from contact with deer. But other than that, um, this is primarily a human-to-human -human spread disease, although we know that people can spread the virus to animals and animals can spread the virus to other animals. Um, well, as I probably um, shed much light on, I've had a huge background in this space, and so I knew that we needed to be involved in some of this work and answering these questions. So in collaboration with the Arizona Department of Health Services, TGen uh, was able to bring in about $175,000 over the past year and a half to study and surveil for SARS-CoV-2 in animals. We started with uh, a household surveillance project, which basically uh, allowed us to enroll individuals and their pets that so where the person was a confirmed COVID-19 case, and we got all this information from public health. Um, and we asked if they were interested in having their animals tested for SARS-CoV-2. 
We went into their home environments uh, after the person recovered from illness, and we tested any dog and cat that was living in that home, uh, getting blood samples to look for antibodies and also swabs to look for the presence of the virus. We were able to, over the course of about 10 months, go to 55 different homes across Arizona, across several of our counties, and sample 130 unique animals. Um, and again, these were primarily dogs and cats. We knew that the dogs and cats had known exposure, um, but what we wanted to characterize was what were the dynamics around these animals potentially getting exposed to the virus and testing positive? Were people who were quarantining at home, kind of goes back to the human-animal bond conversation, you know, people were quarantining at home, isolating. We had a shutdown. Uh, people couldn't go and interact with each other, but if they had pets, you know, we definitely wanted to stay close with our pets not knowing that there was the potential for the virus to be spread to them, even though it doesn't make animals very sick. We have evidence to show that dogs and cats particularly can become symptomatic, very similar signs and symptoms as people uh, range from asymptomatic to mild respiratory to much more severe illness very limited cases of uh, COVID-19 fatality in animals though. And uh, so we didn't want to just identify cases, but we wanted to understand the circumstances around these animals uh, becoming exposed and then eventually testing positive. We had great success in this program. We called it our Arizona COVID-19 and pets program. Um, and we identified 33.6% of pets uh, across 24 households had evidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection, either presence of antibodies or actually um, active viral infection, PCR positive, just the same kind of testing that's being done for people. And um, it was actually really comparable across uh, other states that were doing similar household surveillance studies. The extra layer that I wanted to talk about here that we were able to do was this genomic sequencing. So that's the other part of, of my role at TGen. Um, TGen, in addition to all of our public health research, we really specialize in bringing on genomic surveillance and genomic technologies. So looking at the DNA and the RNA of these important pathogens and understanding novel pathogens, understanding the emergence of antimicrobial resistance and maybe ways to tackle that also characterizing strains or variants. The variants of SARS-CoV-2, we know all about these because we've actually sequenced, looked at the entire genetic makeup of the virus over and over again, month after month after month, and have seen these mutations pop up that make the virus that infected person A, Delta, and the virus that infected person B, Omicron. It's by looking at the genetic makeup of the virus that we can tell whether it's Delta or Omicron, and also tell how related these viral strains might be to each other, and whether we have clusters of cases, which epidemiologists track all the time by calling people and asking them how they were associated with each other. Now we use the genomic data to actually tell us that automatically, kind of like a family tree. You're going to be more closely related to your brother and sister than you are to your second cousin, but you'll all end up on somewhat of the same family tree because your ancestors are the same. So we can apply the exact same thing to pathogen genomics. And where this comes into play for our project is that for any animal that tested positive for COVID, 
we were actually able to sequence um, the genetic makeup of the virus that infected them. And we were able to look at the strains that were infecting these animals. And even more exciting is that we were the first group to sequence a sample from pets alongside the COVID positive sample um, from the pet owner that likely exposed the dog and the cat. So we were able to identify a, a household cluster, which makes sense because the, the human was interacting in the same home environment as the dogs and the cats, but we were able to actually show this, um, show that the owner likely was the source of infection for either the dog or the cat or both. Potentially it was spread from pet owner to one of the pets and then the pets might've spread it back and forth to each other. But genomically we identified the identical viral strain that infected the pet owner, again, a dog and cat that all lived in the same household. Um, so it was really fascinating in a way that we were able to apply genomics to understand again, how the virus is spreading, not just human to human and not just track strains, but all also how the virus is spreading amongst um, humans and the pets in certain home situations. That is really interesting. And I like the way that you explained it. It's almost like the, the 23andMe, you know, family tree of contact tracing through, um, through this, this process of identifying the clusters. And that is, that's interesting that, you know, you can take that information to really prove, um, you know, or provide a lot of evidence for the the transmission dynamics in the household and, um, you know, and the, the owner to pet and then pet to pet. And um, that's definitely an interesting layer that you're able to investigate and, and show with that. Yeah. And the, the other, you know, really interesting part that takes the, the next One Health spin is that we continue to learn across the pandemic as, as the pandemic continued, um, that a lot of other animal species were susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. So we learned a ton about um, these mink farms, white-tailed deer, and then the impact not just on the free-roaming uh, wildlife, but also um, on captive wildlife species like in zoos. And for Arizona, that was a, a group of folks that we had not worked as closely with um, as we had with other partners like our Arizona Game and Fish Department or USDA Wildlife Services folks that are doing routine rabies surveillance and all of those different components or companion animal vet communities or animal agriculture uh, entities like the Arizona Department of Agriculture and State Veterinarian. We didn't really work a ton with zoos um, previously, um, but we learned pretty quickly throughout the pandemic how important it was to also build up surveillance programs at these agencies because this is an environment where potentially you do have a lot of exposure, not zoonotic exposure of an animal potentially infecting a person, but the spill back of a person being infected with whatever and then spilling that back over um, or in potentially exposing um, an animal. And we need to remember that's kind of another one health layer to that. You know, these animals in captive settings, just like our dogs and cats, are also exposed to the environment, are also exposed to many different things. And we really saw zoo animals, particularly uh, lions and tigers and um, bears, otters, as well as some primates, 
that were potentially infected with, or that were infected with SARS-CoV-2 uh, because they were exposed to individuals that um, that were also in infected. And some of these, you know, zookeepers might not have known that they were infected. So what does that look like? How do you prevent um, and do all this additional biosecurity to avoid exposure to animals when a person themselves might not even know that they're sick yet? Uh, as SARS-CoV-2 has added this other layer. So the, yeah, the last example that I just wanted to give and, and the expansion of this project beyond the dogs and cats is that we also started working in 2022 with additional funding um, with our zoo communities. And we did conduct surveillance uh, in, in our, a couple of zoos in Arizona for SARS-CoV-2 in these animals. We asked zoos about their biosecurity programs, uh, what type of contact the staff even has with the animals, how they uh, restricted the public from interacting with animals. And of course, you don't necessarily interact with animals when you go to a zoo, but some enclosures, you can get fairly close. We know, I mean, the six feet rule, Sometimes you can be within six feet of an animal enclosure and then a kid sneezes or puts goopy fingers on a, a bar, not thinking about it, even though the animal is way down in their little habitat. Uh, it's all possible, possible mechanisms for how the diseases and these microbes can be shared in this environment and spread. So we wanted to tackle those questions and we worked with one of our zoos in Southern Arizona, particularly to do surveillance. Um, and we were actually, uh, we, did, we did actually identify SARS-CoV-2 in a squirrel monkey that was likely exposed um, from a zookeeper that 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 eventually had tested positive for the virus. Um, and what resulted from that was this really amazing One Health collaboration where folks from public health, uh, myself and folks at TGen who did the testing, folks at the zoo, national partners who've been monitoring this situation in wildlife and, and captive wildlife species in general, all came together to understand how this squirrel monkey potentially got infected, make recommendations for the zoo on how they can prevent this or, or just look at what their protocols are so that they, they know if they're doing something right or, or if there's something that they can change um, to really prevent this in the future. Or maybe this was just an unfortunate one-time incident. Um, and so that, that work is ongoing. Our wildlife work is ongoing. Our companion animal work is ongoing. And SARS-CoV-2 is, you know, is the example, the reason I wanted to give this example is because it's an emerging pathogen. And so much of what we have done to understand SARS-CoV-2 has been through this One Health lens, understanding, yes, what it's doing in the human population, how it's spreading, vaccinations, all of those components, but making sure we address the animal health piece and making sure we're addressing the environmental piece, uh, even extending into wastewater surveillance, which is a, a whole other topic that can be talked about probably on another One Health Wednesday. But it's just an example of, um, of, of how we can really bring those three components together uh, to, to address this virus, which has surprised us every single time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, as you said that, that um, the SARS-CoV-2, you know, really brought out a lot more 
work and, and thinking about things through this one health lens. And I'm really grateful that, you know, you've touched on and worked in this, this advocacy in, um, you know, infection prevention and control for animal health too, you know, cause I think one health is, is a two-way street. <laughs> you know, we, a lot of times, like you said, you know, we talk about zoonotic disease from, from animals to humans, but I think it's also really important that we protect, you know, the, the spill back, um, you know, back into animals, um, and especially these really vulnerable animals and these, um, you know, kind of stuck in enclosures, like they're, they're very much a captive audience to what's brought to them. And so, um, that's really cool that you talked about that dynamic as well. And, um, yeah. And then wastewater surveillance. Yes. <laughs> it's a whole nother, <laughs> I, uh, it's a really, really interesting field and, and certainly warrants, you know, its own, uh, its own episode in and of itself. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, I think the the last kind of piece to touch on is, is these growing technologies, um, these emerging technologies and expanding capacities in the One Health space. So yeah, wastewater-based uh, epidemiology and wastewater surveillance is, is not novel by any means, um, but it's really been, been brought back with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic and is a way to do surveillance um, kind of in the background and look for potential increases or hotspots of different diseases. We certainly are implementing that not just for SARS-CoV-2, but for flu and um, GI illnesses. And it can be used as an early warning system for public health. And that's exactly how I view uh, animal surveillance uh, oftentimes. And you know, the, the, going back to my example with plague and prairie dogs and fleas, these animals are, are being served exactly like that. They're, they're an early warning system for, uh, for, for whether we potentially have increased plague in the in zootic cycle and then what the threat might be for spillover into an epizootic cycle, into people, into other companion animals. Um, and, and highlighting you know, the importance of incorporating some of these new technologies like genomic technologies. How do we know every year what strain of flu we need to put into the vaccine or put what strain of flu is even circulating? And you know, is it is it posing more of a risk to a certain demographic or not, that's where genomics come into play and, and monitoring, again, endemic diseases that circulate either human to human, potentially human to animal or animal to animal. But thinking about translating that, again, the TNT gen uh, into these emerging pathogens um, and the emerging pathogens that we also already know about, like Staphylococcus aureus or Candida auris, uh, which is an emerging fungal pathogen, but it's something that has already hit U.S. soil um, and is really threatening our healthcare communities. Um, you know, we have all of those these healthcare-associated pathogens and antimicrobial resistance that's increasing in them. How do we know uh, which drugs we should be utilizing in clinics to treat these patients? Well, we can be using genomic technology and specialized uh, assays, basically specialized tests to identify those, um, those infections in people that do have antimicrobial resistance. And then look at, well, where could that antimicrobial resistance be coming from? Is it coming from the the prescription level of um in you know in the human health population 
is it coming from the environment? Is it coming from that, uh, you know, treat, treating uh, things and animals? There's again, you know, not, not a talk on AMR, um, but certainly another area uh, that, that really needs to be focused on through a One Health lens and where work is already being done and how we can bring genomics into that space. So this idea of One Health genomics going back to my exact title and role, how can we thread all of these different pieces into the puzzle, address these new diseases, address existing diseases, address what these existing diseases are doing in a new way, and also being prepared to uh, respond to potentially the next One Health pathogen that's going to to come into our our uh, our existence, um, and doing that in the most collaborative way possible. So I think the the last comment that I wanted to to make too is that you know we're really trying to build what we call this Southwest One Health collaborative, um, and and really that includes having this vision to apply a next generation approach of collaborative research, technology, policy, practice um, through this One Health strategy to best address uh, critical human, animal, and environmental threats at the local and, and statewide and national level, um, bringing in all of these partners and tackling things like pathogens in the community and the environment, looking at population health um, through genomic surveillance efforts, um, again, antibiotic resistance and healthcare-associated infections, maybe developing new diagnostic tools for human health and animal health, um, and translating that into those practices where it's most useful. Um, also, the microbiome of the human and built natural environments, you know, and, and then lastly, microbial evolution, pathogen dispersal, uh, kind of like with Rocky Mountain spotted fever and emerging infections and doing that all in the most um, collaborative way possible so that we can be prepared on a regular basis to tackle what our current threats are and be ready to tackle what the future threats might be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm really intrigued by this the, the microbial evolution and, and pathogen dispersal, you know, when you're talking about uh, genomic epidemiology and, and it would definitely, if we, we're going to have to bring you on for a round two. <laughs> We've got to, well, yeah, definitely. Cause I'd love to hear more about, you know, those, those dynamics and um, you've touched on some really interesting pieces about with, with AMR, you know, identifying the the source and, you know, where that resistance is coming from just really fascinating work that you're doing. And I appreciate you sharing so much with us, you know, both at the, the high level and then it really getting into the detail with these examples and, um, you know, what you're working on and, and what's coming, you know, our sort of our next generation progressing, um, technology and types of surveillance and, um, I would love to hear if you'd like to share, you know, some advice or some interesting areas um, of, of research and translation for people who are, you know, earlier in their career or maybe transitioning into more of this, this one health field. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to comment on that really briefly. So I think the biggest piece of advice that I have for folks, you know, whether you're in the One Health space or or not or not yet, um, is follow your passion and and remember your skill set and what really introduced you to these, um, you know, concepts and disciplines that just 
just fuel your fire in the most uh, positive way possible. Uh, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, my my background really was in the animal health arena and. I'm not a veterinarian, but I'm doing all of this great work in the animal health space. And I, I know how to bring groups of people together from different disciplines. Uh, maybe we need the funding. Maybe we need some expertise, uh, all of that. You know, we need time always to do great work. You need all those resources. Um, but a good idea is exactly that. A, a good idea and a, putting a plan in place um, is, is the epitome of One Health. And so I think my, my advice to, to folks and kind of upcoming scientists is, you know, stick with what you're passionate about, build your network, talk to people, collaborate when you can, and the opportunities that uh, will present themselves to kind of find that exact niche. There's never going to be that job title that is exactly what you think the job needs to be. Uh, and, and I'm perfect case in point for that. Um, I've got this very exciting title, but I really do a lot of cool work uh, because I, I, I'm a part of these groups that drive that stuff forward. Um, so, and, and never be afraid to ask questions and think outside the box, uh, I think are my, my last two, two points. You know, follow, follow your passion, follow your skill set network, push yourself outside your comfort zone and, and cool things will fall into your lap. I'm a firm believer of that. I love that. And thank you for your fearless innovation, you know, that you've put into place here and, you know, and stepping out of those, those comfort zones and networking with people and thinking about, you know, what things can be, I think is very, very inspiring um, to me and, and to our, our One Health audience here. Um, so thank you for doing that work and, and we hope that you keep up the good work, you know, moving forward and, um, I'm partial to Arizona. So thank you for all of your hard work in Arizona as well. And, um, and we also want to give you a space here. If there's anyone that you would like to thank that you know, you've worked with or that's helped you along the way, um, I'd like to give you some space to recognize them as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely want to thank the um, Arizona Department of Health Services for not just a fantastic five years there, but also for all the continued collaboration and partnership, especially with respect to this SARS-CoV-2 project. Um, and, you know, really a big shout out to all of the partners across Arizona that are so supportive and are willing to, you know, break down some of those barriers relating to collaboration and and sharing of of resources and and projects a lot of the work that we've done uh, that I, I've done specifically the things that I've mentioned with uh, plague and tularemia and certainly SARS-CoV-2, you know, it, it is it is not done in a silo. There's no I in team, but there's also no I in One Health. And so <laughs> I'm really extending a thanks to all of those groups that are just really willing to uh, be innovative with, alongside me and alongside TGen as we navigate and continue to navigate this you know, this new pathogen among us, um, but also find ways to leverage the existing infrastructure uh, that that occurs in, in other settings to respond to what's already around us or again, respond to that, that next piece. Um, so yeah, it just to uh, no one specific person, but, but all of those groups that just continue to provide a, a huge level of support um, in, in the, the varying One Health work that happens. 
That's fantastic. And I want to thank you again for joining us. And we want to wish you luck on your One Health adventure and, and continuing to do this great work. Thank you so much, uh, Ginger. Yeah, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to to share all of this stuff. As you can tell, it, it gets me really, really excited uh, to to communicate all of it and and to to just put put the good work out there. But I do really appreciate you having me and and hosting this. And um, and am happy to to share my contact information if any folks have questions about the stuff that I mentioned on this podcast. Uh, and a, a huge supporter of One Health Wednesdays. So. So thank you is the really the the last piece for me. That's wonderful. And yes, and thank you. Thank you for offering to share your uh, your contact information. We'll definitely we'll um put a link in the uh, the podcast description so people can can reach out to uh, ask questions and collaborate further. Excellent. Thanks. To support the mission of One Health Wednesdays, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify and remember to leave a rating and review. You can find us on all social media channels and at onehealthwednesdays.com.